Okay. Kate can cry with Jack, but not Katie. Kate can cry with us. You can't be laughing. Yeah. Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 12 of Cake and Crime. I'm Jack. And I'm Luke. And I know this week you were expecting um, some special guests, but it was not the guests that you were expecting this week. I was meant to be recording at my extended family's house, but turns out they weren't really up for recording a podcast. So let's hope they're not listening to this. I'm the next best thing. So Luke's the next best thing. And Luke is the actual person who, if you remembered, originally recorded Cake and Crime, the Cake and Crime intro, which people aren't really fans of, but... But it went platinum. Haters so. gonna hate. <laughs> what can we say? So we're here in Luke's flat, which is the coldest flat in the world. <laughs> the coldest flat in the world. And we are recording on one microphone because Katie is in the middle of moving out and has packed the second microphone. So we're here... Making it work. Make, trying to make it work as best we can, snuggled up on the table. So let's hope this sounds just as good. So yeah, Luke, how do you feel about being on Cake and Crime with our millions of listeners? Hello, listeners. I'm, um, no, I'm really excited to... I'm actually really looking forward to hearing the story that you've got prepared. Well, not the story, but like the... What do you call it? The crime? Yeah. yeah. Um, let me give you some background on Luke. So me and Luke met on a job, a European tour that we did together. <laughs> Put that one in there. It's on the CV. What job was it, Luke? It was called Das Andrew Lloyd Webber Gala. The Andrew Lloyd Webber European Tour Gala. Um, it was a fun job. Yeah. And that's how we met. So that was two years ago now. We met, oh my God, two years ago on the like, 9th, I think. <gasps> so it's been a while. It's been a while. And what a two years it's been. Um, guys, let me give you an update on mine and Katie's situation. Katie is in the middle of moving out and so we probably won't be back recording together until the new year, um, but we will definitely be back. So until then, I have Luke for now. So let's get on with our cake. And I know it's not a real cake today. This is all very last minute and rushed. So Luke, what do we have here? <laughs> we have an empty, shall I say, bag yeah. of celebrations. We've, they've all been eaten. We've already eaten the whole bag of celebrations. So... We've not got very much to eat, to be honest with you, but yeah. What about the ginger nuts? Oh yeah, we got some ginger biscuits as well, which we also ate earlier and dipped in a cup of coffee or tea. So if, guys, I'm sorry, we don't have much on the cake front today, but I would recommend a bag of celebrations or a packet of ginger nut biscuits. Or I tried for the first time today, because Jack brought it over, a quiche. Oh yeah, a quiche. Be adventurous. Try a, really a quiche. Nice quiche. Yeah. £1.49 from Aldi. There we are, bargain. Bargain for this Christmas period. Anyway, let's get started with the crime. So this week's crime is from um, Kent and it's called The Russell Murders. Mm. So Me agent. <laughs> let's hope not because you won't get any frigging jobs. Um, this is the murder of the Russell family. So Luke. The Russell family lived a rather quaint and happy life in Chillingdon in Kent, which was in the countryside. There was Dad Sean, Mum Lynn, Josie, who was nine, and Megan, who was the youngest in the family, being just six. Mm -hmm. They were described as being the perfect family. They were very happy and lived the idyllic lifestyle, which most would aim for. They had moved to Kent just under a year previously, as Sean, the dad, had just recently got a new job in the area, 
and it seemed the family had settled in perfectly to their new life. It was a perfect summer's morning on the 9th of July, 1966. Were you born at this point? I was still <laughs> not even a thing. Luke wasn't even, Probably not even a thought. For another two years. Yeah. I was two at this point. Oh, gosh. Um, so the 9th of July, 1996, and at around 8am, the Russell family were getting set for a typical school day. They all had breakfast around the table together. Juggling work and parenting, Sean and Lynn appreciated this time together. Some time later, Sean and Lynn told each other how much they loved one another and kissed goodbye as Sean drove the girls the short distance to their school. He did this before heading to work, leaving Lynn at home to take care of things there. The family all continued their days at school, home and work as normal, oblivious to the fact that in just a few hours' time the incident would occur which will change their lives forever. At around 4pm that afternoon, as the girls' school day draws to a close and Sean finishes work, he heads to the local town to run some errands as he knows that Lynn will be collecting the girls from school. As it was such a wonderful day and a short distance away, Lynn decides to walk through the picturesque lanes to this girls' school to pick them up, a decision that would cost their lives. Dun, dun, dun. Are you on edge? Yes, I am. Later that evening, at around 7pm, Sean arrived home to find nobody was there. He wasn't too worried though, as he knew that Lynn had mentioned taking the girls to Brownies after school, so assumed this is where they had been. Thinking everything is how it should be, Sean started to make supper to have ready for when the girls arrived home. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary for Sean, until he received a phone call from one of the mothers, whose daughter also attended the same Brown group as Sean's daughters. She called to make sure everything was okay, as she was in fact meant to be picking the girls up that very evening to take them to Brownies, but was slightly concerned when she found out that nobody was home. It was at that moment that Sean started to become slightly concerned for the safety of his family. For the majority of the evening, Sean had believed the girls had been busy at Brownies as planned. Now, as he realises how much time has passed since knowing of the girls' whereabouts, he started to panic. He checks the landline for voicemails for possible messages that might have been left by Lynn, but there was nothing. Trying to calm himself down a little, he decided to think more rationally and tried to work out a suitable explanation as to where the girls might be. At around 9pm, Sean had exhausted all his logical thoughts as to where the girls might be and had called around everyone in the family that he had known to make sure that they hadn't heard from Lynn or the girls. After coming up with no possible explanation to them not being home, Sean thought it was time he called the police to see if there had been any accidents reported. Having informed Sean that there were no reports or accidents in the area, he got into his car and decided to try and search for them himself. Right. Wise idea, do you think? Well, so can we just go back a little minute for a second? Okay. So Lynn went to pick up... Uh, the girls from school. Yeah. She wanted to go down that cute little country lane. Yeah. Um, and do we know yet that she picked up the girls and took them to Brownies? Or were the girls at Brownies? So she picked the girls up from school. Yeah. And was planned then to go back home with the girls. Yeah. And then the girls was going to be picked up by a family friend. And oh, family to be friend taken was to, bra- take um, to Brownies. I yes. see. But the family friend has arrived at the house and the girls aren't they there. They weren't there. 
Lynn or the two daughters weren't there. Right. So that's what has alarmed Sean because he's now received a call from the family friend saying the girls weren't there when she came to pick them up to right, go to right, Bryce. Right, right, right. Um, so he decided to go and drive the route that the girls would walk home from school but came across nothing. Becoming more panicked, he tried and exhausted all his contacts and idea of any possible logical explanation for them not being home. By 10 o'clock that evening, Sean was beside himself with fear for the safety of his family. So he called the police for a second time, this time to report them missing. Unbeknownst to Sean, the police had in fact taken his call earlier very seriously and had taken it amongst themselves to start putting things in place to search for Lynn, Josie and Megan. Whilst the police were out searching the surrounding areas for the missing girls, a couple of officers were squeezing as much information out of Sean as they possibly could. Mm. By 11.30 that evening, police had made a shocking discovery which was about to turn Sean's world upside down. Just a couple of hundred metres from the family home and on the same road that Sean had driven up earlier, the bodies of Lynn, Josie and Megan were found laying in the bushes. They had been badly beaten along with their dog. <gasps> oh my god, you didn't mention the dog before. That wasn't in the family description. You're more shocked about the dog and not the people. I know, but I mean, so they had a little dog as well. Yeah. Oh, so the mum had just gone to pick up the girls with the dog, thinking it was a normal Cute day. Yeah. Went, yeah, it was like, oh, I'll take this route today because this is cuter. Yeah. <gasps> god bless. Sean was informed and his world instantly fell to pieces. How could someone have done this to his family? It was now up to the police to find out who it was that was responsible. Sean was asked by the police to head down to the police station with them for further questioning. Not hesitating and wanting to do all he could to help the police with their investigation, Sean is taken to the police station that very evening. The police questioned Sean about every part of his life to see if they could get an idea of who might have done this and why no stone was left unturned. Whilst he was being questioned, Sean received some incredible news. One of his daughters had survived the brutal attack and was still alive. At first, all the bodies at the scene had been presumed to be deceased, so were left there as it was now a crime scene and didn't want to tamper with any evidence. Although later, at closer inspection, they saw slight movement in one of the girls, Realising she was still fighting for her life, they rushed her immediately to the nearest hospital. They weren't actually able to identify the little girl, so Sean was taken to the hospital immediately to see her. It turned out to be the eldest daughter, Josie. In the meantime, the investigation was well underway. (gasps) (laughs) Underway. Police had cornered off most of the surrounding areas to the location of the body, They wanted to make sure that they wouldn't miss anything in the search as they believed the suspect may have discarded the murder weapon close by. They had very little to go on and the only living witness to the attack was laying in hospital fighting for her life and doctors were unsure if she was going to make it. More witnesses, however, started to come forward. One man described seeing a light-coloured car loitering in the area at around the same time that the girls would have been walking back from school. He thought that the man in the car had been very suspicious, so he went back out to check the area that the man had been in after he'd gone. It was there that he found a blood-soaked towel. Another witness saw the same car pulling away from where the bodies had been left and managed to create an e of the man. 
Do you know what I always think about? She said, you know this, like, another person said that they saw this. Like, how do they remember these things? Like, imagine if someone got, God forbid, got killed, like, around the corner. Yeah. And they, the police were like, okay, so did you see anything? They'd be like, oh, well... I see a lot every, I see a lot every, every day. day. Like, yeah. how are you supposed to pick out, like, oh, well, there was a red car here at this point. I always find it so bizarre. I guess if you find them suspicious, you might be able to remember. Mm. But I do know what you mean, because you see loads of people every single day. Because I always feel like it's so, like, coincidental or, like, lucky or a miracle that someone has noticed. Well, I don't, obviously don't know if this is going to be turned out to be, like, the car that did kill them or whatever. Mm. But, like, if it is, then it's so lucky that someone did actually get onto this car being suspicious, do you know what I mean? I think because they live in quite a rural area. Yeah, true, true, they true. They're used to everyone they see yeah, on a daily basis, whereas yeah. they see someone they don't know, it's yeah. more likely to stick out to them. Yeah, true. So, um, an e-fit was created of the man. After time, their key suspect... <laughs> not the daughter. <laughs> I've written this down so wrong. My God. I put key suspect... Josie, but she's not the key suspect, she's a key witness. So after the time, so after time, their key witness, Josie, remarkably slowly started to make a recovery despite her horrific injuries. It was going to be a slow process, but miraculously, Josie was on the road to recovery. The news of Josie's recovery came at a crucial point for the investigating team, as they were no closer to catching the killer. She started to get stronger as the days went on, but hadn't regained her speech. Therefore, police were looking for different methods in which they could try and communicate with Josie to get her to reveal more information. They used little toy figures so that Josie could recreate what happened on that frightful day to her. By using the toys, she would recreate them, like, walking, Hmm. and she would show... How old is she again? Josie's nine. Nine, yeah, and the other one was six. Um, So she tried to recreate that, which I thought might be a bit scarring even still a bit more like still traumatizing to like react it yeah yeah like sure what happened when you got beaten but then how else do you do it with a young child how else do you you get it out like do you get them to talk about it so months passed and the local community started to fear that there was still a murderer walking amongst them Mm. and thought it would be only a matter of time before they would strike again by july 1997 police had exhausted all their possible leads so turned to uk tv show Crime Watch. Mm. Oh my god, do you remember? I loved Crime Watch. I wasn't even, I still wasn't born, by the way, at this point. <laughs> right. Shove I used to love Crime in. Watch, though. Yeah, I used to love Crime Watch. I think Crime Watch. Which is such a scary concept, the fact that we loved Crime Watch, and it's literally yeah. called Crime Watch, as in, like, there's criminals out there, please be careful. I think that's what first got me into crime, to be honest. But with I used you. to be like, what's the gossip? What's yeah. the tea? <laughs> Tell us now. <laughs> Go on. Who do I need to avoid? Literally. I could give some names now, to be honest. I think, yeah. <laughs> could do a crime watch now to avoid some of the nasty men out there. <laughs> and um, they appealed for anyone to come forward with any information about the attack and they also did a reconstruction. As Crime Watch was watched by millions at the time, they were hoping someone would come forward. So to our American listeners, Crime Watch is just a crime show where they put Crimes on that haven't been solved yeah. to help Is people it still solve a thing? crime. No, it's they have a crime watch road show now, but not the actual nine o'clock. It show. was the most bizarre. It really was it the was, most bizarre concept. Yeah. I think because they'd they'd show like the real pictures of the real people. Mm. Obviously, for you to like, if if you saw them out on the street, you'd be able to be like, there he is. Yeah. But also, they used to like. I used to love it when they again. Love it is such a weird word to use, but like I used to 
enjoy watching it when they'd recreate the yeah, crime scary. with the actors and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it used to be like a, a I really was, interesting I was show. one time actually watching Crime Watch and there was a guy that got kicked out of my college in second year and he was on a reconstruction. <gasps> no, yeah. an actor. Yeah. Oh my God, I bet you got dollar. More than me. <laughs> Times are hard, coronavirus. <laughs> oh, so someone did come forward after the appeal on Crime Watch and it was a doctor. Um, he called in to give the name of one of his patients that he was suspicious of at the time of the murders. The patient's name was Michael Stone. As well as looking very similar to the EFIT shown, he had been said to be talking about the murders and this murder in particular an awful lot, which made his doctor suspicious. As soon as the investigating officers received the name of the potential suspect, they dived into opening an investigation on him to figure out his background to see if he may well have been responsible for the crime. When looking deeper into Michael's background, police began to unravel a dark past. They discovered that he was a frequent drug abuser and knew the area that the Russells lived in very well. Assuming he would have known how quiet the roads would have been, it would be the perfect place to commit such a crime. He also claimed just before the murders that he had intrusive thoughts that he desired to kill. What police needed to understand though was why in fact Michael would want to kill the family. What would his motive have been? Police assumed that his reason for the attack initially may have been just theft or sexual assault and believed he might have just killed the dog just to silence it. There were many arguments and contradictions to this though and that were brought up when police were coming up with theories. They argued against the murderer actually being local as they had known from the scene that the murderer himself had driven a car to the area where the bodies were found. It was argued that if in fact the man was local he wouldn't need to drive to the area and he would have been on foot. So all very contradictions so we're not sure if it is Michael or not. Mm. Despite all of these contradictions and not very much evidence, the trial still went ahead and began early October 1998. And I was now in the world. Thank God Thank for that. Thank God. Well. Michael was found guilty of two counts of murder and attempted murder of Josie. He was given three life sentences. It wasn't until now that the truth would be revealed about the fateful night in July 1996. Here we go. So I'm going to give you the tea. Give me it. In the afternoon, just before 4pm, Lynn had left home with her dog, Lucy, to go pick the girls up from school. It had been a little later than usual, as the girls had been at a swimming gala that day. God, very productive mm. family, aren't mm. they? You can tell they were very like, okay, so the girls have got this at this time, then they've got brownies, they've then they've got, got to do money. this. Yeah. So after arriving... Um, at school to pick the girls up, they set off on their one and a half mile walk back home oh through the country lanes. God, steps, getting the steps in. Lynn and the girls loved this walk though, as it was so picturesque and quiet, and it would be something they would do often. As they were midway through their walk, Josie, the surviving daughter, recalled passing a white car that was parked just on the side of the road with a man sitting inside. As the family carried on walking down the lane, Suspecting nothing of the car, it slowly started to follow them. It eventually passed and rounded a corner of the lane just in front of the girls. When the girls eventually reached the corner, they noticed the car had stopped and the man had left the car and approached the girls. As the man got closer, they realised he was carrying a hammer. Scared for their lives, the girls listened to the man as he started to demand money. Not having anything with her, 
Lynn said she would head back home and get some money for him. The man didn't want this and wanted cash now. Not knowing what to do, Lynn screamed at Josie to run and get help. Sadly, however, as she started to flee, she was hit with the hammer. He forced all three of the girls into the dense, bushy area, tied them up using swimming towels from one of the girls' bags and beat them with a hammer. Mm. Lynn had suffered over 15 blows to her head and Megan seven, and had caused major skull and brain injuries. After the vicious attack, it seemed the man just walked off as if nothing had happened and drove home. It's now been over 20 years since this horrendous attack and Michael is still claiming his innocence. <gasps> there was no DNA at the crime and all the evidence brought to the court had all been circumstantial. So since this and more information has been out there that Michael confesses his innocence and there was another guy who people thought he could have been as well because this other guy also fitted the e-fit and I just wanted to tell you Michael was actually really a short guy and quite skinny as he was a drug abuser and people think he wouldn't have been able to take on three girls at once like he people think that they would still be able to overpower him so people aren't certain that Michael is the right guy. Do you think though because yeah, I mean, but, like, it's little girls. Like, nine and six is, like, so little and, like, mm-hmm. very, like... I don't know, you you see stories of, like, a younger brother... A brother and a sister, and the brother yeah. who's 11 has managed to kill the girl who's nine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. And, again, and, he, and he is a grown man. They probably would have been too scared to even yeah, do I mean, anything. Yeah, in those circumstances, the people who are being attacked you are uncontrollable. Like, you don't know what to do sometimes you freeze sometimes you give up do you know what i mean like that is their argument though and all the evidence is circumstantial so they're still fighting what does that mean circumstantial so they don't have any like dna evidence so like right so it's like this is what could have happened yeah so you have this same car you were seen in the area at this time right 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 nothing is set in stone right i see so that's the case of the poor russell family imagine having your family taken away from you like that (sighs) But, so, but Russ, what's the dad called? The dad, Sean. The Sean is still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. And the daughter, Josie. Josie's still alive, yeah, <gasps> and they've moved back to Wales. So they left the house in Kent and moved back to Wales. Oh my God, they must be um, scarred for life. Scarred, Especially yeah. Josie, yeah. who was literally beaten up. Mm. Isn't it mad? With a hammer. Oh. Well, that's all for today. I think we're going to wrap this up now. Um, so thank you for joining me, Luke. It's been an absolute pleasure. As thank always. you for having me. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We probably won't be back now until after Christmas because it's going to be a busy time with moving. Um, so, yeah, and Katie should be joining me back then. So we'll say ciao for now for Luke. Until Merry next Christmas. Time. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And a Happy New Year. <laughs>